Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today on the show, we're finally leaving our deadbeat jobs and committing to a life of full-time farming and podcasting. Welcome to Lore Party, the podcast that explores the stories, characters, and universes behind some of our favorite video games. My name's Leo. And my name's Abu. Welcome to the welcome to the farm. Welcome to the farm. One note, Leo. Yeah. Are you quitting your job? Listen, Abu, level with me. I sent my letter in. Leo, we don't make any money off of this podcast. What? Uh, we'll figure this one out off mic. Because today we're going to talk about Stardew Valley, which is a game that both of us love. I am embarrassed at how many hours I've played this game. Not as much as some people. I remember reading a Reddit thread where someone was like, back when I only had 200 hours in this game, and I was like, calm down, Farmer John. You need to spend more time on life. Yeah, I will never get on that level. I mean, some <laughs> of the numbers that I see, I, literally the other day, I saw on the Stardew Valley Reddit that somebody posted a Steam screenshot of like 700 or 800 hours played, and I was just like, I don't think I've committed that many hours to anything in my life, let alone a video game. So, I mean, props to Stardew Valley for being an incredible game, but I can't pump that many hours into it, I think. And for what it's worth, this game is so good. It's so good. And I, I think it's it's worth mentioning. For those of you who don't know, we should tell you a little bit about the game, kind of what it is, uh, just so you have an idea for how crazy some of the stuff we're talking about is because we're going to talk about some things that you're like yeah that makes sense in like a political intrigue video game and we're like right but this is a farming game <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely i mean the game the core mechanic of the game is essentially you inherit this farm and you have to build it up from scratch which sounds like an extremely harmless game but today we're going to dive into some of that hidden lore that gets uh pretty dark i would honestly say it was surprising, right? Like every turn when I was going down the rabbit hole of links and research beyond what I already kind of saw in my playthrough, just clicking on link after link going, there's no way that's actually in the game. And then seeing like the screenshot or the clip or it's there. I mean, it's all there. It's really cool. Yeah, I had the same exact reaction when I was doing my research for this episode. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, just to get everyone caught up on what Stardew Valley is exactly, if you haven't had the pleasure of playing the game yet, A, you absolutely must, especially if you played Harvest Moon growing up, because it is essentially an unofficial spiritual successor to Harvest Moon. It has many of the same mechanics from that game. And I'll just say, I loved Harvest Moon when I used to play it. Like, I remember playing it on so many different consoles and even the recent ones, the ones on uh, like GameCube and the portable ones, as well as the, uh, the monster one that had like the battling combat and that sort of thing. But I remember when I was first told about Stardew, 
how it was effectively this one guy who worked for four years on a game. And the way it was explained to me was he went to make what Harvest Moon could have been if it didn't have some of its problems. So as I mentioned earlier, the basic premise of the game sort of circles around this idea of building up this farm from scratch. But when it comes to the lore of Stardew Valley, the premise at the very top of the game is you worked at a corporation called Joja at a basically dead-end job, a corporate gig that was lifeless and soulless, and your grandfather died and you inherited his old farm. And so you head down to Stardew Valley, you hop on that bus, you head to the farm, and you start building it up from scratch, and you start to get to know the folks of Pelican Town. I think a lot of the Harvest Moon games also started out that way. You inherited a farm from some sort of family member. I mean, I think it was an intentional tip of the hat, right, to the Harvest Moon series in so many ways to say, yeah, this is how it starts. But Harvest Moon, I played so much of, and it never had the type of lore that you find when you dig deep into this game and you dig deep into this. And when (laughs) when you browse the Reddit articles about this game, it's clear that the wider video game community who play this game and obsess about this game and put 800, 700 hours into this game, that everybody has this broad respect and appreciation for the quality of writing and planning that this guy put into it. You know, you, you're going to hear some of these uh, theories we put out here, but a lot of them have some substantial evidence in their support. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've teased it quite a bit at this point, but we should jump right into the the lore discussion. But before we begin that, I do want to preface this by making sure that we throw a spoiler warning out there. If you haven't played Stardew Valley, or if you're somebody like me and you've put in, quote unquote, only 60 hours into the game so far, (laughs) that is not a lot of hours into this game. I'm only in my second year. There are people who are into their fourth and fifth year of the game and still discovering a lot of these elements. I didn't care about spoilers and I had to do the research for this episode. So I went ahead and dug into a lot of these late game things that come up. But I do want to throw that spoiler warning out there that a lot of the things that we're going to talk about are pretty late game. So if you want to discover them for yourself, maybe play the game before you come back and listen. Well, and I put 200 something hours into this game across a couple of playthroughs. I loved it. Every time I discovered something myself, I was over the moon ecstatic. But when I look at the amount of time necessary to uncover some of these secrets, I'm glad that I just checked the website. (laughs) So I would say if you are currently playing the game, if you're about to play the game, maybe you just picked it up on Switch or you're pumped for the uh, multiplayer release that's coming out pretty soon, whatever the thing is, if you jump into this game, maybe play it, try it out, save this episode, you know, save it, put it in your pocket. And then when you're on a rainy day, you're going, I don't know how much more I got, man. I don't know how much for this farming stuff I can do. (laughs) Pull out this and hit play and listen to our dulcet tones as we talk to you about farming. Absolutely. Okay, so let's kick it off. We both dug through the lore and essentially found two things that really stuck out to us and that we wanted to discuss today. I'm going to let you kick off uh, our first discussion with your first topic. This first one you will likely see if you're like me and you just kind of follow the hints that are handed to you. And the first thing I wanted to talk about, which I thought was really cool, is the elemental war. In this world of Stardew Valley, there are dwarves and there are shadow people that you're fighting in the mines as monsters. And even the like adventurers guild will give you rewards for killing a certain number of these monsters. 
as you play, you encounter this friendly dwarf who's pretty cool and you can become friends with him. I'm a total nutcase. I'm a total oddball person. So whenever I meet one of those oddball characters, I'm like, you, you're going to be my friend. This is awesome. <laughs> Matt, wait a second. Is that how our friendship started? Now is not the time, Abu. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Carry on. Tell me more about these dwarves. Because I, I did meet the dwarf. I In my 60-hour playthrough, I haven't actually translated the dwarf language yet through the scrolls. So when I talk to him, it's gibberish. But when you told me about this, I was just like, <laughs> wow. So carry on. Sure. So you meet this dwarf, uh, and that's when you get, I think, the iron or the steel pickaxe or the cherry bombs. But the point is you meet this dwarf and you talk to him. You can become friends with him. You can give him things. He has a birthday. He can actually become like a good friend or a best friend in the game. And he mentions a couple of times, he mentions that his people, their word for themselves translates to... Uh, people from the sky or sky people, something like that, which is the first hint that maybe they are not from this earth. Which is actually pretty cool that he mentions it because I actually found that from a library book that I just dug up. So there's also a library book that has a little bit of lore on dwarves and their origins. And that mentions it as well, that they call themselves the sky people. Right, right. It's, I mean, it's it's kind of sprinkled throughout the the universe. But the, uh, the, the place where it really gets cool for me is right in the beginning, you're teased with this locked sewer. And you don't really get to the locked sewer until pretty late on. So when you get into the sewers for the first time, you meet Krobus. Krobus is a friendly shadow brute. He's a, he looks just like the shadow brutes that you fight, but he's non-aggressive. And actually, immediately, you can start buying stuff from him. It's kind of cool. Um, but as you talk to him, he starts saying things that are like, he mentions there was a 1,000-year war between the dwarves and the shadow people. He also asks you if you've seen other shadow people like him while you're in the mines. And he says, you know what, man, I'm sorry for their behavior. They, we haven't had good experiences with humans, and so many of us are aggressive towards humans. But I'm just sorry for their behavior, which was such a real moment, you know? That is incredible that he sort of apologizes for his brethren or his people. And it's interesting that... Krobus becomes your gateway into these things that you, up to this point, have only just slaughtered without a second thought and have actually been rewarded for slaughtering. And now suddenly Krobus is the spokesperson for these shadow people. And he gives them a face. He gives them history. He gives them meaning. He actually mentions, and this is this was funny because it was sort of a parallel between the dwarf and Krobus. Krobus mentions that if the dwarves knew where he was, they would probably send an assassin to kill him. And conversely, the dwarf, when you're talking to him, he kind of implies a few times that you're a spy sent by the shadow people. So these are two characters who are still existing on either side of this rift. And there's actually a personal stake here too, right? When it comes to the dwarf's family? Yeah, the dwarf mentions that he blames Krobus for the death of his family. Oh my God. Oh my God. I think this is a great, great moment to reiterate that this is a farming simulator where you are just <laughs> raising some chickens and planting some crops. I mean, we are now into a war between two alien, maybe not alien, but two races, and there's suddenly a murdered family involved. 
And something else that's particularly interesting is why the dwarves call themselves the sky people, right? The going theory is that dwarves are aliens from outer space and they crashed on a ship with advanced technology yeah. on Earth. Yeah. So that is that that's pretty interesting to me, the fact that the dwarves had this advanced technology, potentially because they're not from this Earth, crash landed here and had this ancient, maybe not ancient, depending on how you look at time, war against these shadow people. And there's another there's another point to support that they're aliens. Very late on in the game, you can get these uh, a particular type of shard. And if you bring it to a place where there are these, these three pillars and a dwarven kind of wall of text, once you can translate the wall, it gives you sort of a hint and a poem. If you bring the right kind of shard, and it might be at the right time or something like that, I never did it personally, but I was reading about it, it will give you the galaxy sword or the galaxy blade. And I think especially the galaxy sword and the technology of the dwarves, which is now lost, speaks to a larger theme, which we are going to come across throughout this entire discussion. And that's the idea of this war between technology and the advancement of technology against nature or magic or the status quo. The shadow people represent magic. And obviously the dwarves, when they crash landed on Earth, brought with them this advanced technology. And that resulted in the elemental war and the beginning of this conflict. There's also a lot, there's another side of that too, right? Because we have the shadow people who are where they've always been, as far as we're concerned. And this outsider coming in who maybe doesn't belong or who is incongruous with the sort of area and that conflict that inevitably arises. Yeah, absolutely. And I think while we're on the topic of war, I'd love to jump into my first piece of lore that I dug up during my research. And that's another war. <laughs> Again, I'm going to say this repeatedly, farming simulator. <laughs> but there are now two wars confirmed in the lore of this video game. First was the Elemental War, and the second war is actually one that's happening right now in present day. And I know you're all hearing this and going, yeah, this is like Game of Thrones, you know? Yeah, this is Mad Men or some other topical TV show. No, this is a farming game where you farm <laughs> things for farming. Yes. Uh, well, while you're farming, <laughs> a guy named Kent is actually at war. So I need to set this up a little bit. When you move into Pelican Town, you're part of the Ferngill, I think I'm pronouncing that right, the Ferngill Republic. But across the sea, there's another empire called the Gatoro Empire. And sometime, I think late in your first year or when your second year starts, a character named Kent, a war veteran, comes back to the town. So he was presumably deployed and returned to the town after his deployment. And he starts to hint at whatever conflict he was deployed in. And you realize that the Ferngill Republic that you are a part of, that Pelican Town is a part of, is at war with this nation that's across the sea called the Gatoro Empire. That is happening in present day, currently. I also saw this really great comment, and I thought it, I don't, I don't know how much it's going to be like juicy lore, but it's, it's always funny to me because... This is the sort of stuff that I think really builds out the world, in my opinion. Uh, someone was pointing out, like, if there's a lot of loss and a lot of casualties and that sort of thing, this is a huge economic sink. Like, 
war often is something that can deplete a nation's resources really dramatically. And they were tying that hilariously to the cost of beer and bread in the saloon. Because they were like, 420 gold for a beer? <laughs> like, this is the kind of inflation you only see when a nation's really duking it out with another nation. Like, this is, there are rations. There are, there's massive inflation. This is This is serious, folks. That's so true. I mean, I, we, and I don't think we're going to talk about the economics of Stardew Valley, but maybe that's an episode that we should dive into. But I did want to ask you, why do you think this valley in particular seems to be pretty isolated from the war? Well, I, it's a little hard to say, right? Because I think they give us a few hints as to where Stardew Valley is in some way, but not many. This could just be an isolated part of the larger Ferngill nation. That's true. You bring up a good point. It could just be geographical. Maybe the valley is just sort of very far away from the war effort. What else could it be, Abu? <laughs> well, here's my... This is not a theory and it's not fleshed out and I really have nothing to back this up, right? But what if... <laughs> just, just roll with me here. What if Joja is part of the war effort, mm. which is why they're so pervasive in this game and they're trying to take over the community center and they're trying to undercut Pierre and his shop. I mean, it would make sense that if Joja is sort of the face of the advancement of technology and they're at war against a more magical nation, Joja is potentially the person, we don't know what Joja does, right? Like right. They, all we know about them is that they run a Walmart in this <laughs> rural town, but we don't actually know what their business is, you know? I have a feeling Joja might be involved in this war. Another another good point that just occurred to me. So where is Joja Mart in the city, right? It's like the upper uh, upper kind of north eastern most that you can get in the game. Where does the pig show up who's smuggling stuff? Maybe he doesn't want yes. Joja to find out. Maybe the pig is flying under the radar, smuggling goods in from the enemy, trying not to be detected by Joja Corp. Absolutely. That's another reason why I think Joja might be involved in the war effort is there might be some trade tariffs. There might be some just laws on what can be imported from the Gotoro Empire. Who's that going to benefit? The largest conglomerate that's selling things like Joja. And that would be so like Joja, wouldn't it? <laughs> Profiting off of war at the cost of good, poor, innocent Pierre. So, Joja, I absolutely agree. I honestly want to do an episode that's just titled <laughs> Fuck Joja, and we just shit on Joja for an hour, you know? Like, that is all we do. But again, that's for another episode. So, I think that about wraps it up for the two, like, really dark, heavy, war-related topics that we wanted to talk about today. What was your second piece of lore? I think this one's a little more lighthearted. Yeah, so Pierre is the only one who wears glasses in the entire city, and yet you find broken glasses in like every body of water when you're fishing. <laughs> Pierre, what are you doing? Like, seriously, man, come on. What poor city of only people who wear glasses is upstream from Stardew Valley? Like, what is this weird? No, that's not actually my next thing. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that you notice if you talk to a lot of civilians, a lot of people, is this mention of Yoba. Yoba is the creator deity of Stardew Valley. It's uh, This is the single god that you're introduced to. Now, 
Throughout the game, when you talk to people, they'll be like, thank Yova, this thing happened, you know? Oh my gosh, I can't believe... Whoa, Yova! <laughs> that thing scared me. <laughs> you know, it's like that sort of substitute for these uh, these colloquialisms that we have. Right. Oh my Yoba. Oh my, oh my Yoba. Yoba has a sigil, which looks a little bit like this kind of vertical line with two sort of shrugging arms. It's kind of it's kind of funny if you think about it like a meh, like shrug, but the uh, you'll see it all over town. Like it's on the adventurer guild like sign. It's on a bunch of different items. You'll see it in people's houses. Even the little supermarket has a shrine, like a yoba like prayer room. Well, well, not the supermarket. Pierre's Pierre's, Pierre's shop. Sorry, right? yeah. Like Pierre's shop. If you continue back into the room, there's like a second room where. I once found the ladies doing like a yoga class. It's yoba, yoba with a B. With a B. It's yoba. But no, legit, like all the ladies in town were like collected in this room and standing in a circle. And I was like, what the satanic ritual is happening here? Um, but then later on, I talked to one of the ladies and they talked about how uh, one of the women holds a, a, a class there weekly, which is like these tiny, tiny details that just like give life to this world. And right next to that room is sort of an altar slash mini church for Yoba. Right. And you'll see on, uh, there's a specific time every week where people will go there and sit in prayer, I guess, for for Yoba. And uh, other other people like, uh, so Shane, who I, I noticed he works at Joja. Mm, take note of that. Shane, it states openly that he's an atheist. That's a part of the game being representative of all types of people in all walks of life. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also interesting that he works for Joja. Right. And to bring it back to the big idea of this episode and the big theme we've been talking about all episode, Shane being the atheist, he doesn't believe in religion or mysticism or magic. And it sort of calls back to that age old (laughs) conflict between magic and technology. So my final part of this, my final part of this theory that I love was this one, and I have to pull up the Reddit comment, and it's by a Reddit user, Teal Lichen. This this could be something that other people have speculated about. Even Teal Lichen started off, I'm new here, so I apologize if this has been theorized before, but I loved the theory. You meet a character named Linus, and Linus is, uh, he's this kind of, he appears to be somewhat homeless. I mean, he has a tent. But it's it's out and you're kind of in the open. It's not really a, an established homestead, right? At one point, he also says something about how people avoid him because of the way he smells. So I think the game does represent him as somebody who's homeless or essentially shuns the modern conveniences of living and chooses to sort of just live in a tent out in nature by himself alone. Right. So this is the here's the theory. All right. I've 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 beat around the bush. This is the theory. Linus is Yoba. (laughs) Oh my God. This is, for me, headcanon, but, you know, follow me on this. Uh, Basically, T. Lycan points out he's a humble being, and whilst he's a part of Stardew Valley, he's not really connected to it. People are aware of him, but he stays out of their way, and the only person we see interacting with him pretty much ever, is the wizard. Now, another thing he points out, if you, let's say you're going into the mines, you're like 60 layers down, or 70 layer, like levels down, and you're fighting these incredibly tough things, and you've fought 
hard to get down there. You've got amazing mm-hmm. equipment. You're leveled up. You're strong. You have a lot of stuff with you to keep you alive. If you die down there or you get knocked out, who finds your body? Well, a couple of people could, but Linus finds your body. Linus <laughs> lives in a tent. He doesn't have anything. How does he get down 70-something layers in the mine with unarmed, not a lot of things, you know, on him? Incredible. I, I suspect something is afoot. I'm convinced. You know, th- <laughs> this could become part of my official headcanon. I'm going to say something pretty dumb. Sure. He also has a beard. Hey, he has a beard. He has a beard, and most modern depictions of God mm-hmm. show him as an old man with a large white beard and long white hair. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. just take a look at Linus's character. So he also mentions, uh, and this is a great quote that uh, that again, uh, user T Lichen points out on Reddit. It would be nice if the townspeople could accept me for who I am, an old man living out here in the open air. That's what they don't understand. So again, he's like. I'm just a, I'm just an old man, man. And I'm like, I see through you, Linus. You're, you're just an old man, <laughs> but you went 85 layers down in the mine and saved me from winged death bugs. I think you're a little more than just an old man. Oh my God. Mind blown. That is, that's a great theory. Um, but we should ra- try to wrap up and move on to my final, final piece of lore which is not as incredible as this Linus being God That's theory. <laughs> I think this is a pretty popular theory and it's pretty well uh, accepted in the community. And a lot of folks have already picked up on this, but the idea of Abigail's parentage comes into question when you begin to grow your hearts with her and you learn a bit more about her and Pierre and her mother. And at one point, as you're getting to know Abigail and you're wooing her and giving her gifts, Pierre, her father, confesses to you that he's a little bit worried that she may not actually be his biological daughter. And then that leads to some other events that happen as you continue to court Abigail. Caroline eventually mentions that she used to sneak out to the wizard's tower every now and then. And then when you speak to the wizard, he mentions that he actually suspects that somebody in town might be his child. This brings up the question, what is this wizard's romantic life like that he has to wonder, do I have a, do I have a child in that town? Like, <laughs> I'm a young man, but I'm, I'm positive I have zero children. Come on, wizard. Like, come on. That's true. This wizard had to have gotten around to where he's like, somebody in this entire town has my child. <laughs> there are some pretty intense sexual exploits going on in this town, and I am fully behind the theory that Abigail is the true daughter of the wizard. Another reason I think that, and the reason that tipped me off in the first place and led me to sort of research it, was the fact that she's the only other person in town with purple hair. Yeah. The wizard has purple hair, and Abigail has purple hair. And when you talk to Caroline, she mentions that Abigail dyed it. But then during my research, I found out that if you end up marrying Abigail, she has a line of dialogue where she says something along the lines of, I can't remember the last time I dyed my hair. It's never gone back to normal. It feels like it's always been like this. Oh my God. But I do have a question for you when it comes to Abigail and her true parentage. What do you think happens to Pierre when he finds out? He's already suspecting something. You know, I I think that this game has demonstrated that these characters are mature. You know, two ancient species who have been warring for thousands of years 
came to peace because of the impact it would have on the surrounding community. I suspect that Pierre is the kind of person who would be heartbroken and uh, distraught, but that he would come together with his wife and make it through that tough time of learning of her infidelity and his half-wizard daughter who <laughs> he's been raising this whole time. While I agree with you, I think the breaking point in the revelation, if Pierre were to ever find out the true origins of his daughter, is whether or not this affair took place after he was married. It's not clear when Caroline would make these trips to the wizard's tower and when they sort of conceived this child. And it's not clear if Pierre married Caroline before she realized she was pregnant with this child or if this was something that happened after they were married. And I think that would sort of be critical to Pierre's response is whether or not his wife actually cheated on him or if it was sort of something that happened before she met Pierre and settled down. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that makes a big difference in real life and also definitely in this game. I think this would, that would be absolutely a, a, a devastating thing. Yeah, totally. So that's the four pieces of lore that we wanted to discuss officially, but you had actually mentioned before we started recording that there were two small things you wanted to mention. Totally. So there are two things that I discovered that I had never seen in game and they blow my mind. They're so... They, they, they bring up all these questions. Now, some of these questions that they bring up are just for fun. Again, a lot of this is not substantiated lore that's in the game, but these buildings are real and you can get them. And there are two that I wanted to bring up. One is called the Dark Shrine of Memory, and the other is called the Dark Shrine of Selfishness. So let me walk you through what these do, okay? And just give me your candid response. So the Dark Shrine of Memory... It allows you to erase someone's memory of being married to you so you can divorce a spouse and wipe the slate clean. You can erase their memory. Holy shit. Yeah. That is so dark. Which, again, this is technology. They're not like, hey, we invented this just now for you. This exists in the world. So the question becomes, how many divorces have been wiped away by this dark shrine? This is insane. I had no idea about this. Yeah. This is the first time ever hearing about it, too. Even in all my research that I did for this episode, I didn't come across these shrines. But that's that's kind of fucked up. It's crazy. Now, this next one is also kind of fantastic. Um, so this is the Dark Shrine of Selfishness. It allows you to turn your children into doves, which permanently removes them from the game. Oh, my <laughs> God. I wish we did these recordings as live streams so people could just see my <laughs> face when you said that because the audio here is just not going to do my reaction justice. Holy crap. That is so dark. You just turn your children into doves and they fly away and you, you're rid of them forever. Now, here's the other thing. You see some animals in this game. Like in the first, the first scene... There's like the, the bus is coming in and there's the birds that land on the, or the bird that lands on the sign. Uh -huh. Welcome to Pelican Town, right? Right. Was that bird a child? No. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I can't tell if we <laughs> ruined this game for people or if we just enhanced their gaming experience. Take a look at the topics that we covered. Two wars. 
in this universe. (laughs) The idea of technology and magic duking it out. Yeah. The idea of, well, okay, the Yoba thing was actually pretty inspirational, and that's cool. I loved the Linus theory. And then finally, we discussed how love is immaterial in Pelican Valley, and it doesn't matter who (laughs) your children are or who you're married to, because you can can just turn them into doves. I'm still not over that. That's crazy. I'm going to look into that more now that you mentioned that. It's great. Absolutely insane. There, There's so much to this game. And we, I know we've repeatedly said this, but this is a farming game. It's a game. farming game. <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't played it, play it. And as you play it, and as you plant your turnips, and as you plant your potatoes, look at the animals and ask yourself, whose child is that? <laughs> Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. We want to thank you for tuning in and being a part of the show. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at lore underscore party and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. 